Good afternoon and thanks to you all for joining us today for the WAM Global Interim uh, Results Webinar. This is your company and we're pleased to provide you an update uh, and the opportunity to ask us questions. I'm Katrina Burns and I'm the Lead Portfolio Manager from the Fund. Uh, as you can see, I'm sitting in a hotel in San Francisco. I'm attending a tech, media and telecom conference um, here. From Sydney, we have Portfolio Manager Nick Healy and Equity Analyst William Liu and our Corporate Affairs Associate Bridget Philander. So in terms of the agenda for the call, I'll begin by providing an update on the recent interim results, discussing our views on markets, our outlook, uh, for the year ahead before turning to portfolio manager Nick Healy, who'll update us on the recent earnings season and then also provide an update on our insights from, from recent travel before turning to Nick and Will to go run through a few stocks that we think are very well positioned right now. And then I'll hand over to Bridget, who'll run through uh, and facilitate the Q&A for us. So, so first of all, Let's start with the interim results. Um, the WAM Global Board of Directors uh, announced an increase in the fully franked interim dividend uh, of 4.5% to 5.75 cents per, per share. Now, this represents a fully franked um, dividend yield of 6.3% or 9% gross up. This compares to the global equity market yield of 2.3% and the US dividend yield, market dividend yield of 1.8%. The portfolio itself, NTA, increased 3.2% during the half year and we held on average 7.2% cash. The profits reserved for the fund at 31 December sat at 35.8 cents, which represents 3.1 years of dividend coverage. Now, in terms of markets during the six months to 31 December, it was a volatile period. We had uh, central banks across the US, UK, Europe, Australia, all increasing interest rates rapidly in response to sticky inflation. Now, fears peaked around that October period um, as the European situation was compounded by rising energy prices uh, in reaction to Russia cutting off energy supplies with the Ukraine war continuing underway. Since October, we have seen the market rally off the lows um, as some of them with the economic data out of the US and Europe improved and liquidity conditions loosened up. As I said, the fund increased NTA by 3.2%. This was compared to the market, which rose 4.4%. If I look at the sectors, um, the sector perspective around the performance, the biggest detractor relative to Miski World was our sector positioning. Across the market, the best performing sectors during that half year were energy, materials and financials. Now, these are sectors we tend to, we are underweight and, and tend to not position in given our focus on high quality businesses that can sustainably grow earnings over time. Our view is that businesses in the energy and materials sector largely depend on the profit. Their profits largely depend on a commodity price that they can't control. Um, so it's not the type of businesses that we focus on. In terms of the actual stocks that contributed um, to performance, positive contributors were HCA, AJ Gallagher, 
Booz Hamilton, SAP, CTS Eventum, ICE and Booking. And the largest detractors were Avantor, TransUnion, Dun & Bradstreet and Icon. Now, what was interesting during the period was the disconnect between stock prices and earnings. We saw as interest rates rose quickly that there was indiscriminate selling across the board, regardless of whether your earnings were holding up well or not. What we were pleased is that the majority of the companies we hold continue to see very strong earnings and that their earnings were resilient. We think that over time this matters because stock prices ultimately follow earnings. Um, it is... It isn't surprising that the entire market valuation came down as rates rose because you have to put higher discount rates through your valuations, which reduces all asset prices. Um, and, and an example of this is ICON, for example, in the healthcare sector. You know, healthcare is a very resilient sector in, in any kind of earnings, um, in any kind of economic recession. And yet the stock was hit and was one of the largest detractors to performance. What we've seen in in their earnings results actually since, you know, through last year and into this year uh, and and in terms of updates that the company's given in terms of current trading is that earnings are holding up really well. They went to the, at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in January. They updated their guidance, continuing to see very strong growth. Uh, and so we think this is a good example of a stock that will do well over the longer term. The valuation is compelling and yet was, was obviously hit when everything was hit in as markets came down. Now, I've included a chart in the, in the pack here that shows that those earnings across the market uh, did spike post-COVID and, and are now falling as interest rates cool demand. The second chart shows what the forward expectations are for next 12 months' earnings. And what we actually like, even though earnings are coming down, what is positive is that we like the reality is starting to set in in terms of how analysts are forecasting numbers. I mean, we had a peak of I think ten percent earnings growth forecast for for next year. It's come down to closer to zero, um, and and that's positive because if every time a company delivers results, it's completely missing market expectations. You continue to see pressure on on markets. Um, so we think that uh, we are getting closer but not quite there in terms of reality of, of earnings versus, versus where expectations are. Uh, and those these charts just kind of highlight that that first leg was valuation. And as our expectations were, it's now earnings that are starting to be hurt by those higher interest rates. In terms of the actions that we, we took in the half year, we did early in the half reduce our exposure to both consumer goods uh, and housing-related areas because we did think that they were areas in particular that were going to suffer as interest rates rose. So that was positions like Adidas, Lowe's, Ferguson, which we cut. Um, and what we did do with the volatility, though, is took the opportunity to high-grade the portfolio. So there's a number of stocks that we look at, that we go and visit, that we talk to the management teams uh, and that, we've, that we think are very high quality, but for us, the valuations didn't make sense. And we did use the volatility and the um, selling uh, of equities more generally to add names that we think had become compelling and, and ideas 
and stocks there would, would be Edwards Life Sciences, for example, and, and Intuit. Um, so, look, we have taken advantage somewhat of, of the selling. Um, we, yeah, we did sell some names that we thought were going to find it tougher going into this next period. But core to everything is that we are very much sticking to our investment process. We believe it's important during volatile markets, um, as well as in excessively optimistic markets, which we've, we've seen in, in the last few years, to really maintain that discipline around uh, having strict quality and valuation um, guardrails around how we invest. And we use that framework really to identify those undervalued growth companies from around the world. We have done a lot of travel in, in the recent period through the back half of last year and, and now the, and early into this year. Um, as I said, I'm in San Francisco. Nick and I have just got back from two weeks in, in Japan. Um, we are staying very close to our companies. It is a volatile um, operating environment. And so we think that is very important um, at, the, at this point. Before I hand over to Nick to kind of update on what we, what we uh, identified through that recent travel, I will just chat you through the current period and, and how we're seeing things right now. I've put in here a chart um, from Goldman Sachs that I think is a great visual representation uh, of what's happened in markets of late. You'll see along the horizontal axis, that's the stocks that performed in 2022. And so the top performers last year and the only, stock, only area sectors of the market that were actually positive uh, were the energy sector, um, defence sector, and then to a slight degree utilities. Everything else was negative. Um, and so that's kind of the backdrop that was 2022. You see on the um, further side of the left-hand side of the chart was the stocks that did the worst. You know, you've got various names the meme stocks, the unprofitable tech stocks, et cetera, that are, you know, came off 60, 70, 80% um, as those higher uh, in, in interest rates really um, bit into the valuations that people were willing to put on these stocks. Um, what interestingly, though, on the vertical axis is the stocks that have actually done well into this, the start of this year. And, and look, it's nothing like the 2021 period, but we have seen a bit of a bounce, very you know, low levels, some of those yeah. meme stocks, some of the um, uh, crypto-like related names, et cetera, so, and unprofitable tech stocks. So we have seen a bit of a bounce. To us, look, they're not names, you know, that we invest in. We think the reason, for, we can sell, see the reason the long bond yields have come down there's been some slightly more positive economic data than expected. Um, but we are very much of the belief that whilst we're super optimistic on the hot, uh, stock names that we own in the portfolio, we are cautious on that markets have given the all clear um, more generally. Like we don't believe, we think that monetary policy acts with a lag and that the, there are additional economic headwinds still to eventuate. Interestingly, coming into this um, entire interest rate environment, we did have a somewhat unique um, in, uh, backdrop in that consumers through COVID did save 
a lot of money. There was excess savings in the system. Um, and what that, that has provided a degree of cushioning to the higher inflation we've seen. But we think that with higher rates now that this padding, extra padding is quickly being eaten away. And so we understand why it is taking a while to see, um, you know, particularly in the economic data, some of the, some of the um, interest rate effects. Um, but we think, you know, monetary policy, as I said, works with a lag and, and there is, you know, potential more pressure, potentially more pressure um, to come. Now, this is a, the, the next chart is one that um, Matt also had in the leaders webinar the other day. It really gives some context for, you know, previous bear markets. And, and look, we're, the, the message here is we're tracking along like what would be, you know, very commonly seen in, in previous bear markets. Every cycle is different. The time periods are different in terms of how quickly you can get, you know, you can, you can see um, the lows but it does provide some contact, context for where we may be at. Um, then, so, and in, look, in terms of markets and economies, they, we do go through um, cycles. Uh, and right now we are seeing a huge regime change in terms of the winners and losers, um, barring that, that very recent period of, of seeing those, you know, unprofitable stocks, meme stocks, et cetera, have a rally. We think that this... There has, there is going to be a, there is a rotation and has been a rotation away from, you know, businesses not needing to show profitability from SPACs coming to market that barely have a business, um, that that unwind, you know, is here to stay. And we think it actually will be a great period um, ahead for stock pickers uh, and that having an investment process like we do grounded in fundamentals in businesses having cash flows and profitability and valuation support will put us in really good stead um, for the period ahead. Now, lastly, the, the last chart here uh, is on the small cap versus large cap um, disparity versus history. And as you can see from the chart, we sit at, at valuation gap between large and small sitting around those that 25 year lows. As you know, uh, we can invest in any size business, but we do tend to love small mid-cap stocks given uh, the foundations of Wilson Asset Management in that area of the market. Now, the portfolio has about two-thirds um, uh, two -thirds of the portfolio is invested in, um, in small and mid-cap stocks. Uh, and that has been the case since the start of the fund. Um, and this has, as you can see from the chart, this, is, this has been a headwind versus the, the broader um, MISCI World Index and, and, and the, the S&P Index in the US. Um, what we, what, why this makes us actually excited looking forward is that we think that that valuation disconnect will close over time. It isn't unusual to see small cap stocks be hit when there is macro volatility and uncertainty. Um, and so... Look, I think that positions the fund very well. We think that gives us good valuation support as we look forward. Um, and, and, and in terms of the, we expect to see that gap close um, as we go forward. Now, why don't I turn over, hand over to Nick before I do some um, concluding um, comments on positioning and outlook. I'll hand to Nick to update us on US reportings and um, 
global reporting season and insights from our recent travel. Yes, thanks, Katrina. Uh, so with regards to reporting season, as Katrina mentioned, um, the markets have been quite strong this year to date, uh, through February in particular. And what we found when talking to market participants is just that the view around earnings season is that it's been a pretty strong reporting season. It's generally been very favourable. However, when we look into the data, we feel like um, that's probably more of a situation of prices being up, which kind of creates um, a, a benign view of the world. This hasn't been a bad reporting season by any stretch. Um, companies have beaten earnings expectations. However, they've beaten those expectations by the lowest uh, amount since COVID. And as Katrina also mentioned, um, the company management teams have been pulling down earnings expectations going forward. So we've seen the market reduce 2023 earnings by 3% so far this year. So definitely not a disaster, but quite a muted earnings season in terms of the broader market. In terms of our portfolio, so over the past year, we've been moving our earnings streams towards durability while still maintaining a focus on undervaluation and growth. And we found that in the main, we're very happy with how our companies performed. With regards to that forward earnings expectations, they've actually increased their expectations by 1% this year, which is obviously a better setup than the market reducing their, their earnings. So we think the companies in the main are sticking to the thesis. Um, we continue to monitor them for their fundamental results and engage with them to make sure that the management teams are operating them well. But we've been quite pleased with this earnings season. And as Katrina also mentioned, so we've just returned from uh, just under two weeks in Japan, where we saw over 40 stocks. We saw a lot of opportunity over there on a stock-by-stock -stock basis. In, in uh, many markets around the world, but including in Japan, uh, a lot of these companies' share prices were heavily impacted last year, which does create some potential entry points. We think foreign investors are only now returning to the country given the COVID lockdowns. So there's a lot of work to be done in terms of finding uh, great investment opportunities, turning over stones and just continuing to hunt for new ideas. In Japan, the mood was quite positive. The main reason being the Chinese tourist is set to return in 2023, as well as just local Chinese demand improving as they come out of COVID. Japan and China, they're important trading partners with each other. And that was actually an interesting theme to come out of our trip. So we knew going in that companies were moving their manufacturing out of China. We had heard Mexico, Vietnam, um, Malaysia. But actually, interestingly, a few companies mentioned to us that they were going to reshore their manufacturing to Japan. Uh, they felt that Japanese manufacturing was increasing in competitiveness because wage expectations were quite low in terms of inflation. Uh, it's a very, very talented employee pool. And obviously, the yen has been weak, which helps manufacturing there. If Japan can break out of the deflationary trap that they've been in for the last few decades, and this trend of reshoring towards Japanese manufacturing continues, we think that's a favorable to the country. A second, just in general, Japanese companies are a lot further behind US and European companies on their adoption of cloud technology. We think uh, this creates a great setup for these SaaS companies in Japan. 
they're growing because they're earlier in the adoption curve. They should be able to grow better through softer economic times versus potentially some of the cloud penetration stories being more mature in the US and thus uh, would be more impact to slow down. Now, as is always the case, selectivity is key. We spoke to a few online players who we felt were really mismanaging the operating environment. Uh, one company in particular had overhired employees, and it can be quite hard in Japan to reduce your headcount. So definitely picking the spots. But we think as a theme, uh, cloud adoption in Japan is very interesting. So on the whole, the trip was very useful. It turned up a lot of new learnings and potential opportunities to invest. And going forward, we're going to continue to travel around the world as a core part of our process, both in meeting companies we already hold, but also meeting potential new investments as a, a key way to make sure that we understand how the companies are operating and that they're doing the right things. I think a, another way to really illustrate our investment process is to run through some companies that we hold in the fund. I'm going to kick it over to Will to talk about a couple of stocks that we hold, um, and then I'll to a couple on the back end. Sure, that's thanks, Nick. Um, there's two stocks I want to touch on today. So the first one is Pernod Ricard, and the second one is SAP. So starting with Pernod Ricard, it's a French-based spirits and wine producer. It's the leading global spirit, premium spirits producer in the world um, across different categories, across different price points, and at different occasions. So products include Absolute Vodka, um, Jamison Whiskey or Martel Cognac. So Perno has consistently gained market share over the years. Um, we believe this is sustainable because it has a size and scale advantage. It has an irreplicable marketing and distribution capability, and it has this great track record of continuously innovating to adapt to consumer taste. The spirits industry is also highly defensible, um, and it benefits from secular drivers, including from consumption and demographics. If you look at the middle to affluent class globally, that's projected to rise from 3.8 billion in 2021, 5.4 billion in 2030. And that will remain a favorable tailwind driven by emerging markets such as China and India. The spirits category is also um, now the number one alcoholic beverage category by value, having recently overtaken beer. And we're seeing this preference for premiumization and consumers trying to drink better as opposed to more. Um, Perno's portfolio skews towards that super premium to ultra premium price tier, and that's where the majority of the growth is coming from. In the shorter term, we also think China is being part of the story for their business. China represents 15% of their operating profits, and they are poised to benefit from the China reopening. And we believe the market is underappreciating that aspect of the business. Um, if you look at their latest earnings quarterly results, they talked about encouraging positive signals in February, including increase consumption. Longer term, the um, international spirit is in the low single digits, um, and the company believes they can grow in that region organically in the high single digits to low double digits. Now, we got the opportunity to buy Perno because one of its key competitors, Diageo, um, reported some company-specific issues, um, and then Perno was trading at an attractive valuation. Um, the company is extremely high quality, has great pricing power. Its gross margins have consistently been above 60%. Um, and then if you look at um, where the company is tracking, we believe it's well on track to deliver its 
4 to 7% organic sales growth ambitions, and it's 50 to 60 basis points of operating margin expansion. The company is trading at roughly 20 times price to earnings ratio, and we expect to see upside surprises coming from its China business. So moving on to SAP, and SAP um, is one we've touched on in the past and we've held it in the portfolio. That's one of our top 20 positions. So SAP is the leading um, enterprise application software provider based in Germany. Um, they're used by many of the largest corporations in the world. In fact, they touch 77% of the world's transacted revenue, which is really quite incredible and highlights the mission critical nature of their software. We bought SAP on a differentiated view that they would be successful in the transition away from traditional license revenue into recurring cloud-based revenue. Um, at the time, the market was highly skeptical. This is because the prior management had done some missteps. Um, you were required to be patient and take a longer term view given operating profit would be declining in 2022 and the transition process is quite complex. If you look at um, what happened, um, the financials were not accurate, accurate representation of the fundamentals of the company. Um, you saw a change in revenue recognition where licensed revenues are recognized up, up front as compared to subscription revenues, which are recognized over the term of the crack. So fundamentally, the company was doing very well and was being successful in this transition process. But on face value, um, the oper operating profit was declining. Fortunately, we're now in the latter stages of this transition. Licenses only represent 6% of its revenue base and is not acting as a headwind to growth anymore. In fact, we think SAP is poised to accelerate um, earnings growth, given the strong demand for digital transformation projects and evidence through their strong cloud backlog, which is very comforting. comforting. Um, SAP has a more resilient business model compared to its past. Um, it has a high percentage share of recurring revenues has a more stickier customer base, and there's still this significant If we look at the financials, we believe SAP is well on track to deliver its 10 to 13% stated organic free. And in fact, we think they're going to upgrade their midterm ambitions at the midpoint of this year. And we look to see that as a catalyst. So those are my thoughts on Pernod Ricard and SAP. Um, I'll now pass back to Nick. Great. Um, thanks, Will. So I will take you through a couple of stocks as well. Um, so the first one is Chicago Mer Mercantile Exchange, or CME, as it's more commonly known. Um, so we built a position in CME in February. What they do is they're a leading global derivatives exchange with a focus on fixed income, uh, commodities, forex, and equities trading. And CME hold very commanding positions in the areas they choose to operate. They are effectively the default trading area for futures on the S&P 500, as just one example. So we previously held CME in 2021. We sold out of the company for valuation reasons. But in general, we very much like the derivatives exchange space. We've always held one or two in the fund. Um, we think these are markets that tend to trend towards duopolies or monopolies, and they have winner-take-most dynamics that we think are, are very favourable. So at the same time as we built the position in CME, we actually exited our position in Deutsche Bors, an opportunity to compare and contrast. Um, now, that being said, we've held Deutsche Bors, well, we did hold Deutsche Bors since 20, and we're quite pleased with how the results were there. Um, that was largely driven by earnings growth at Deutsche Bors um, 
that exceeded their expectations. So two major reasons for the switch from Deutsche Bors to CME. The first is simply earnings. So taking CME first of all, several of their franchises had quite challenging 2022 periods, um, notably energy, agriculture, and metals. What effectively happened was the price to hedge got very expensive. So those the activity in those areas reduced. Now, as those markets start to normalize, it's actually a great thing for those areas should improve going forward. Combined with a very strong performance in the interest rate complex, we think basically there's the opportunity for earnings beats at CME. Now, Deutsche Bors had a very strong 2022 because the war in Ukraine drove a lot of volatility into European and particularly German um, gas and electricity prices. Deutsche Bors's earnings went up significantly on that. And while that was fantastic, that provide that presents kind of a hard comparison to move forward from. So we see earnings headwinds at Deutsche Bors. Now, the second reason for the switch is valuation. We, as I mentioned, sold CME in 2021 on discipline around valuation, trading at over 30 times multiple of earnings. In the meantime, it's gotten quite a bit cheaper. It's fallen to 22 times multiple of earnings. And Deutsche Bors has largely just held flat at around 20 times multiple of earnings. So by and large, the difference in valuation has closed up, and we see that as an opportunity as well. So we've switched from Deutsche Bors to CME, but we really do see them both as very high-quality businesses going forward for the earnings reasons I stated. But we're also quite positive on the durability of their earnings streams in a range of market environments. Uh, the second company that I'll discuss is Booz Allen Hamilton. Now, Booz are the leading consultant to the US government in areas of Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and the civilian agencies. Booz have been number one for decades with a heritage going back to World War II, but they've actually strengthened their position over the last decade with a lot of investment into leading-edge technology, um, including cybersecurity and directed energy, which provides them a lot of growth opportunities going forward. Now, we really like Booz um, for the reasons that they are beneficiaries of the increasing geopolitical tension and the bipartisan support for US defense spending. We like their resilient double-digit earnings growth potential, and we think the valuation is attractive given the opportunity set. In the shorter term, they had a result in late January that we thought was very strong. Uh, they grew revenues 11%, they beat on earnings, and they raised guidance. However, the market sold it off 5%. Now, we do form the view that in the short term, price can be a lot of noise. We thought it was a company performing so we were happy to add to our position in the current quarter. Uh, looking forward, we think management are operating the business very well. Um, so we're confident in our holding in Booz Allen Hamilton. So that's a few stocks from Will and myself. I'll pass back to Katrina. Thanks, Nick and Will. Um, so I'll just give you a bit of a, a concluding update around positioning and, and the outlook that we see from here. Um, so given the current headwinds that we see to growth, economic growth around the world, uh, as mentioned before, we, are, we have positioned the portfolio towards more resilient earnings streams that we think should be able to do well in light of 
those economic headwinds. That's not to say that we don't own businesses that are cyclical. Um, we do have businesses where, you know, TransUnion would be an example where it has it has have a, some cyclical elements, but we think the fundamental industry structure is very favourable. The long-term compounding ability over time is very strong. So we are happy to continue to own names like this. At the margin, though, the resilience, earnings resilience of the portfolio has certainly been increased um, in, in the last year. Uh, and, and when I look at the cash levels, they do continue to sit at those quite normal levels that we've held um, in the last couple of years, around between 4 to 7%, we've generally tended to hold. And at the moment, we're sitting um, at about 7%. Uh, but we do continue to look to deploy cash where we see opportunities. In terms of the outlook, we are being very selective around the names that we want to hold. Um, we think we've got a portfolio of high-quality businesses which are undervalued uh, and have the potential to outgrow the market. Um, in both good environments and the potentially tougher economic, um, in this period of, of tougher economic growth. Um, we will continue to stay close to our holdings, um, do a lot of travel to see them, to see their suppliers, see the competitors, to make sure we're on top of um, the operating environment that they're facing. Um, and, and we are very optimistic about, about the companies we, we hold. Uh, as and and Nick and Will have given you a few examples of, of those stocks that we think are well positioned. Lastly, from the company perspective, we are focused on, on closing that discount and growing the NTA over time. With that, I will now uh, pass over to Corporate Affairs um, Associate Bridget Thelander to take questions from shareholders. Thanks, Bridget. Thanks, Katrina. And thank you to everyone who has sent through your questions so far. We will answer as many as we can. And if we do run out of time, we will contact you after the call. Uh, Katrina, this first question is for you and it's from Michael. He says, what geographies are you invested in and what geographies are you finding the most attractive? Thank you for the question, Michael. Um, so in terms of the portfolio position, we've got about 68% of our stocks are listed on the US market, about 18% are European listed, uh, about 5% are in Asia-Pac, um, and there's about 7% in cash. Um, now, the, the listing of the stocks sometimes don't, you know, properly represent where the earnings are coming from. A lot of the US businesses, for example, are very multinational, um, and so a lot of their revenue and earnings come from various places around the world. I mean, Thermo Fisher would be a good example, example of that. Um, Perno, um, SAP, lots of examples where their earnings are actually very global, but they are listed um, on the US stock exchange. In terms of what we see as the most attractive um, we actually are finding ideas across lots of geographies right now. I'd say in the back, uh, second half of last year, where we were seeing really interesting ideas was in Europe when there was that big sell-off around the energy crisis. Um, so we added um, various names at that point. Um, more recently, we've added um, some names in the US, which we think are interesting. And, and Nick and my recent trip to Japan has really highlighted, highlighted a few interesting um, opportunities that we see there. 
Great, thanks, Treen. And we'll stay with you. This next question, um, we've had a few questions on this. Um, uh, what measures are being considered to address the current share price discount to NTA? Would you consider an off-market share buyback at NTA? Thanks for the question. Yep, so in terms of buybacks, um, more generally, Jeff's spoken about this at lots of points in the past, and our view is that they don't actually make significant strides in closing the discount to NTA. Um, they, at best, tend to put a floor on the discount, um, and they actually signal that you're not seeing opportunities necessarily in the investment portfolio to invest in, so not necessarily a great signalling mechanism in our view. Um, so this wouldn't be, you know, the strategy that we would look to undertake. Um, in terms of the discount, I mean, we, we think that over time, um, performance dividends uh, and effective communication with our shareholders will be the things that close the discount. I mean, these discounts do tend to be cyclical and you have seen that global licks uh, across the board have seen those discounts um, form and, and, and hold. Um, but more recently, positively, they have narrowed a bit. So, look, we think it is cyclical. We think over time, particularly you've seen in our licks that they do tend to eventually over time trade at, trade at NTA or premiums. And, and that as, you know, it has been an incredibly volatile macro backdrop for global licks ever since we listed, you know, trade wars, COVID, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, Look, we don't think it's, you know, it, we don't think it's um, necessarily surprising that there are discounts, but we, you know, very much um, are focused on on trying to close that discount and, and um, you know, do that, you know, have, we have built up the dividend um, profit reserve, which is super positive. Um, you know, we think we've got a great portfolio of stocks uh, and, and we think our communication is, you know, you know, is, you know, very good. So we'll look to continue, obviously, to get that, like, enhance that over time. Um, but, yeah, that would be our, the, the mechanisms we're thinking about right now. Fantastic. Thanks, Treen. And, Nick, we'll pass to you. This question is from Liz. She says, when do you think interest rates globally will stop rising? Is this needed for equity markets to have a sustained rally? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question, Liz. Um, I think the challenge incredibly important to know, but unfortunately impossible to know. Um, and interest rates is one of those things. Clearly, the reason for interest rates going to this point uh, at around 4.5 to 4.75 in the US, with current expectations that they'll go into the low to mid fives, has been inflation. Uh, now, inflation is extremely hard to predict. Experts, potentially with the exception of Larry Summers, got that one very wrong. Um, and the, the view of the market has shifted to the idea that inflation will come down very quickly. I guess, unfortunately, there is just a lot of uncertainty around that. So calling an exact point in time when inflation, uh, when interest rates will, pick, will peak is um, kind of an impossibility. So the second part of the question... Um, in, interest rates are extremely important to uh, equities and all asset classes. Uh, Warren Buffett uh, famously said interest rates are kind of like gravity for investing. I think that's extremely true, particularly in the short term, because as you go from a world of not having many opportunities 
to going to a world where you have a lot of real alternatives, you do tend to see a situation where valuations of equities come down, um, bonds tend to yield more. This is kind of a short-term adjustment. I think it's always important with equities to understand that over the long term, they tend to grow earnings very well, just driven by productivity and innovation in society. And over the long term, it is earnings that will drive equities. So I think um, in the short term, absolutely. But it's that matter the most. Thanks, Nick. And Katrina, we'll pass back to you. This question's from Catherine. She says, the current dividend yield is quite high. Can you please update us on the ability to continue to pay fully franked dividends? Thanks for the question, Catherine. Uh, so you're right, the dividend yield is, is relatively high. Um, what's pleasing about the dividend coverage is that we have 35.8 cents in the profit reserve at 31 December, which is 3.1 years of dividends. Um, the question that we, I can't, we can't answer fully right now is around the, whether, whether the dividends will be able to remain fully franked. Um, we did note in the interim results um, that that ability to keep paying fully franked dividends depends on um, us paying tax on profits. So right now, um, we have the ability to fully frank this interim dividend that we've announced. Um, we have enough franking to at least partially frank a final dividend um, held at that same level. Um, but look, if we don't generate additional franking, there is the potential that it, the future dividends might not be fully franked um, or maybe partially franked. Look, this is not unusual for globally listed um, investment companies because we don't, unlike the domestic leaks, which get the pass through from dividends um, paid by the companies they invest in, we don't get that, that portion. Our preference is obviously to pay frank dividends um, to the maximum extent possible. Um, but, you know, we did highlight the potential that it, it, the future franking will be dependent on, on generating that e extra franking. Thanks, Train. And this next question is from Gary. He says, can the team give a few examples of stocks that have hurt performance? Perhaps, Katrina, you could kick off. Yes, yeah, sure. I'll, I, yep, I'll certainly kick off. Um, and then maybe I'll throw to Will and Nick. They can, we can each give a stock that's that's hurt us. Um, the one I'd mention is is Icon, which I briefly mentioned in the, in the um, prepared remarks. So, it's a CRO, contact research organisation, does clinical trials on behalf of pharma companies around the world. So, um, you know, there were some concerns back half of last year around biotech funding, um, which saw the stock get hit, which and, and it was one of the largest detractors um, to performance through the second half of, of last, uh, um, second half calendar half of last year, so first half interim results. Uh, and what we've actually seen in terms of the results um, is that the earnings have been very consistent. Um, the, in January, they, as, uh, they attended the um, JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. They confirmed like, that, that operating earnings were continuing to develop strongly, revenues were continuing to develop strongly. Um, and, and so we think the fundamentals are very strong. It has had, it had a bounce um, since then, uh, and we think it will be a strong contributor to returns going forward. But it was a, it's a good example of a stock that did hurt us during the um, interim result period. 
maybe will maybe you give one and then and then nick yeah sure katrina um the one i'd talk about is adidas um we sold our position completely exited our position in adidas late last year it's a company that we got wrong so They downgraded guidance um, late last year. We lost faith in the management team. We were worried about issues in terms of excess inventory, the prolonged zero tolerance COVID policy in China. Um, we identified thesis drift, reacted quickly and decisively to cut our loss to cut our losses and um, sell that position. Subsequently, you've seen the CEO actually lose his job. Um, they've had to discount on excess inventory, which has impacted their gross profit margins. And they've terminated quite a lucrative partnership with Kanye West with the Yeezy brand. So um, it's a stock we got wrong, um, but we are stuck to our process in terms of identifying when the thesis had changed, identifying when there was earnings risk and enacted appropriately. Mm. And I think one that comes to mind um, on my end uh, is Intercontinental Exchange or ICE. Uh, we've talked about ICE quite a bit. And so it is um, interesting that that's a I think it's important to say with ICE, we are very big fans of the management team and we actually are very big fans of the company and the industry with, with which they operate. They, uh, Jeff Sprecher led an investment into the mortgages space, um, which he is currently doubling down on with their attempted acquisition of Black Knight. Now, I think I, I completely understand over the long term the idea here. Mortgages are still done very much um, not digitally, the opportunity to be an end-to-end -end digital mortgage origination and servicing platform makes a lot of sense. It's a very big market, lots of potential cost out. Now, the challenge is they stepped into mortgages just as rates went up, and that did heavily impact that part of the business, which I think at peak was around 20% of the, of the company. Um, it's shrunk closer to 10 to 15% today. As that's happened, that's definitely hurt earnings. Um, what's also hurt is the company has gotten cheaper through time. Uh, now, if we think of where we are today, as I mentioned, we, we idea of digitizing mortgages. We think the rest of the business is fantastic. So I'd say today we're very optimistic on it. However, that is a company that's, that's underperformed um, over our holding. Thanks, everyone. This next question is for Will from Tim. He says, what are your thoughts on investing in China? You've previously discussed Tencent. Do you still own it? Yes, thanks. Thanks for the question. China is a difficult one. Um, we do have, still have a position in China. We own Tencent. Um, we've been really cautious on our weighting and risk, and it's stayed at 1% of the portfolio. I guess what we saw was a confluence of factors. Um, we think tense with regulatory concerns and um, the zero prolonged zero tolerance COVID policy in China. We know that Tencent is a high quality business. Um, we think the regulatory process has probably passed its peak. And at the same time, Tencent, um, from an earnings perspective, is returning capital to shareholders. Um, we do like China and in terms of the reopening thematic, but in terms of managing our risk, we playing it through other ways. So names listed elsewhere with revenue exposures to China. So um, Pernod Ricard, which I talked about here, is uh, Booking.com or LVMH, Thermo Fisher, Volkswagen. And so we're still getting um, 
that thematic in terms of China reopening, um, but we're trying to manage the, the risk and appropriate reward. Thanks, Will. And Katrina, back to you. This question's from Pella. Um, she says, what um, does the WAM Global Portfolio invest in unlisted securities? Thanks for the question, Pella. Yeah, so um, as a, according to the prospectus, yeah, yes, like WAM Capital and the other funds, we can invest in unlisted um, stocks. We actually only own one um, right now, and it's, an, it's a business called Expansive. They're the leading global carbon and environmental commodities um, exchange platform. So like Nick's talked about with CME, Deutsche Börse, ICE, we do tend to like exchange businesses. They've got very high operating, incremental operating leverage as trading volumes come on. They're more like the tools and uh, picks and shovels that help operate a market rather than depending on a particular price per se. Um, to drive their business. Um, so you, this is a business in that space, but more around those ESG commodities. Um, it was on track to IPO last year, but then with markets shutting the IPO window closing, um, instead they took an investment from Blackstone of $400 million, um, which valued it at over a billion dollars. Um, we invested in this business in December 2020, um, initially at a valuation of 300 mil. So um, that was a very um, nice uplift there. Um, we expect Blackstone, you know, we've sp spoken to Blackstone about their intentions for the business. We're very excited about them as a big shareholder in it. We think they will accelerate the growth. Um, and so it's about a 2% position in the portfolio. It is the only unlisted stock we have. And we think over time it will be taken over by trade sale or will eventually IPO. Thanks, Trine. Uh, and Nick, back to you. This question's from Thomas. He says, what sectors are you favouring and what sectors are you avoiding at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Thomas. Um, so in line with the idea that we are moving the portfolio towards um, still growing uh, earning streams, but earning streams that are durable, we find ourselves quite heavily invested behind a kind of an info services approach, which as far as sectors are concerned, falls into diversified financials and B2B services. But these are the kind of businesses, um, the exchanges that I discussed are an example that have very high margins, quite a bit of pricing power um, and quite durable earning streams. We're also uh, well invested behind healthcare now, healthcare clearly, in terms of when people need it, uh, the demand for it, that's a very economically acyclical thing. It should grow through any environment. So we are a fan of healthcare as a place to invest, um, and we're very invested there. Uh, now, some of the areas where we're kind of less invested in, as Katrina mentioned, so more of those bank financials, more of materials, energy. Uh, Industrials uh, outside of the info services space, so transports and capital goods, these are companies with quite cyclical earning streams. Um, now, I know many of the industrials companies particularly well, and, and we think there are situations where the market might not be giving credit to the potential for earnings disappointment in the price. So those are, are less attractive to us. And, and as a result, we've kind of pushed the portfolio away from those areas. Thanks, Nick. And, Will, this is one for you. It's from John. He says, do you have any exposure to renewable energy in the fund? 
Thanks, John. Um, yeah, we, we do have exposure to renewables. Um, importantly, we're not investing just based on the thematic. It's sort of these companies satisfy uh, undervalued growth criteria and sort of have to fit, fit those requirements. Um, Train touched on Expansive, which um, has exposure to the renewables market. The other two names I'd highlight would be, first one is Aplus, which is a small mid-cap name um, based in Spain. They do testing, inspection and certification services. Um, they used to do oil and gas. They pivoted towards renewables, hydro, solar, wind, and the market is completely underappreciating that fact. Um, they also do electric vehicle testing, inspection, certification before they come to market, which is also um, um, part of the renewable transition. So that's a business we think is being underappreciated. The other one is and government entities. Um, what they do is they're part of the, they're involved in the modernization of the grid and transmission lines to um, enable this um, transition to a carbon neutral economy in the US. So they're, they're poised to benefit from some of those secular tailwinds. Thanks, Will. And Katrina, this is a question from Paul. He says, when do you expect the discount in valuations of small versus large cap stocks to correct? Question, Paul. Um, uh, so generally it's not, not unsurprising that small mid-cap stocks tend to be sold off um, first when you're going into an economic downturn. Um, if you look at prior cycles, when markets correct, small mids tend to get hit first. But, the, but when you see um, recovery out the other side of the markets, they tend to rebound first as well. So first in, first out. Um, so our view is there are still some headwinds to equities, um, but eventually stocks follow earnings. And if we've invested in high quality small cap names where the earnings can be resilient over time, um, we think that positions them really well coming out that other side. But yeah, we do we do think that it, look it, that valuation disconnect is there. We do think it's extreme at the moment, um, and that timing. It's interesting, you know, markets aren't the economy, and and often markets rebound. Like if you look at historically, where have markets rebounded um, versus economic downturns? And it's often just as you're officially entering a recession, markets actually bottom. So. We're in the worst of the actual real world economy, but the stock market's already starting to will be already starting to rebound. Um, so look, I think it's it's you know we're working through that. If, you know that if you look at earnings forecasts, as I said, they're coming down. Um, so look, mid half back half of this year, um, we think things should look you know um, you know potentially there is the potential that equity markets um, you know start to move higher and, and we will have seen um, a lot of that, you know, that bear market um, worked through. Thanks, Treen. And Nick, this is a question from Greg. He says, are the earnings of the stocks when Global holds growing faster than CPI? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Um, so I think the short answer is yes. Uh, now, we, we talk a lot about... Um, performance and we think it's very important to understand how companies are going uh, in terms of their fundamental earnings growth. So we keep a very close eye on not just both how are our companies growing earnings, but how do we expect them to grow earnings going forward. Um, 
Now, CPI is a moving target, but uh, depends on your definition, but it's probably in the mid to upper single digit range. Um, now, earnings growth, we expect to grow in the double digit range for the companies we've selected. So I think yes is the answer. Um, and that's just a bit more detail on that. Thanks, Nick. And we'll stay with you. This question's from Rob. He says, when there are no retained earnings, how can WAM Global pay dividends? I'm happy to pass over to Katrina for this one as well. But I think the answer is if there are, if there is a world of no retained earnings, um, WAM Global will not be able to pay dividends. Um, so Katrina can, can touch on this, but I think that's what we do is we look for companies that can continue to drive the retained earnings uh, and the franking credits buckets. But Katrina, what, what would you add? Yes. Yeah, so in terms of the dividends, it's um, as Nick's right. In terms of the, it relates to our profit reserve, though. So the whilst at the moment I said, you know, I said earlier we do have that thirty-five point eight cents of of profit reserve. Once that is run down, um, then we would not be able to pay dividends. Right now, there's three point one. Um, years of dividend coverage at the current dividend level. Um, so we think, you know, we are relatively well um, positioned there. But as that profit reserve is worked down, um, that does limit the ability to pay dividends. We would need to generate um, additional profits reserve um, to be able to keep doing that. Thanks, Trina, Nick. And um, we'll stay with you, Katrina. This is a question from John. He says, in what macro environment do you see the WAM Global Investment Portfolio outperforming the index? How do you manage hedging with currency? Sure, John. So in terms of the macro, it's interesting. We, you know, you can't, we do talk about the macro, but we are fundamentally trying to find stocks that we think compound earnings over time. And it's not, it's less about the macro and more about the fundamentals of the stock. However, you know, you, the tailwind you get from a, you know, a, a strong macro um, backdrop um, can really accelerate earnings. And, and, you know, in the short term, macro d does drive stocks and particularly interest rates. And so that headwind from interest rates rising and the overall um, hit to valuations that we've seen um, has hit all stocks in, in the market. But fundamentally, if earnings compound over time, our view is that our the stocks that we own will do well. Um, clearly, if you own stocks that keep missing profit forecasts, that can't consistently grow, um, then, you know, that will, that will drive underperformance. But we think Whilst in the short term, the, mar the macro matters, um, over the long term, it's, it's just the fundamental earnings of businesses. So there are headwinds right now in terms of that macro backdrop, but that focus around earnings resilience um, and, and earnings will think will put us in good stead for outperformance over time. And sorry, on the and secondly, on the question on hedging. Um, so we the WAM Global portfolio isn't, um, isn't hedged right now. We do have the ability to hedge if those two, but the fundament when we started the fund, the um, message like the shareholders um, basically gave us the feedback around uh, exposure, underexposure to global equities and overexposure to the Australian dollar. So generally, we have not hedged um, the the fund up until this point. Certainly at extremes could do so. 
Um, but we think part of owning the fund is that exposure to, to FX. Um, and so, yeah, the, the portfolio is, is unhedged at, at this stage. Thanks, Katrina. And Will, this is a question from Gregory. He says, have you reduced your holdings in FISERV and Lowe's or completely exited them? Um, thanks, Gregory. Um, so we have exited um, FISERV and, and Lowe's. So um, this is on the back of our sort of discipline valuation process where um, like FISERV earnings had um, valuation had actually re-rated a bit and we took the opportunity to sell our holding with Lowe's um, they were a huge beneficiary and it's been an outstanding performer for us in, in the portfolio. Um, they were a huge COVID beneficiary. They had a new management team which completely turned around the operations of that business. However, we're reaching a point where they're starting to see diminishing returns. Um, they had to divest the Canadian business to improve their margins. But this year, they're looking at flat same-store sales growth. So um, it's going to be a harder environment for the Home Depots and Lowe's of the world. Um, we do see them as really attractive companies. They're similar to Buddings here in Australia. Um, and we're waiting for more attractive either valuation points or, or earnings expectations to come down enough where there's enough margin of safety. Thanks, Will. And Katrina or Nick, this is a question from Bruce. He says, how is the rising cost of capital affecting the costs and profits of WAM Global's holdings? Um, I'll, I'll start off. I'm sure Katrina has some some smarter things to add at the end. Um, but so rising cost of capital is a result of inflation. So inflation going up simply means that it's more expensive for firms to acquire the, the cogs, the raw materials, as well as the labour that they kind of require to build their end products and services. Now, what companies have enjoyed over the last year is a situation where they could always offset this with uh, increased prices. However, we are seeing from a lot of companies that um, their ability to price uh, is kind of diminishing. So we think margin squeeze is a very real potential risk for a lot of companies. In terms of the cost of capital, um, for a company that doesn't have to tap capital markets, to some degree, it doesn't matter too much at what valuations they're equity or debt trades at. However, that's not every company. A lot of tech firms pay a lot of their employees in stock. If their equity falls, that's obviously a very bad thing for their employees. So you, you get into morale issues. And obviously, um, any company that has debt on the balance sheet that isn't fixed in duration will rate, face rising interest costs as another hurdle to, to face. I've probably hit on, on most of the major ones. Clearly a very challenging environment for management teams. Um, Katrina, anything you would add? No, I think you've done a great job there. Yeah, it's, it, look, I would, I would concur. It's been like, if you could have scripted the operating environment for management teams post-COVID, um, you mean... On the positive, very strong demand for lots of companies, but managing that backet, that supply chain, rising inflation. Um, I mean, the number of companies that haven't been pushed price in you know years and have been able to. It's been a very dynamic operating environment. We think that pricing um, power that they've had though is is waning, um, so that you know the the, the best companies are, are about to be seen because that that. Demand, rising interest rates are um, affecting demand and the profitability of businesses going forward 
is does have strong potential to be under pressure um, because you know wages are one element where once they're um, up, it's very hard to get them down. There is the benefit of those logistics costs, etc., coming down, coming down. But wages are, are often a bigger part of a cost base. So we think that for lots of corporates, that margin squeeze potential is is high going forward. And so part of what um, we're looking for when we're talking to business is those businesses with very strong industry positions that do have pricing power, um, because we think you know that that is becoming more and more important. Um, and that wage pressure does it is still there. I mean, over time, as the economy starts um, to potentially falter more, um, you know, there is likelihood that that labour that um, employment does unemployment does go up, go up. So that pressure will will eventually ease. But once you do have higher wages, unless you remove people from the workforce, it is hard to to get them back down. Um, would be my comments. Thanks, Trine. And this next one's for Nick, and it's a question from Rob. Um, do you have any plans to invest in Asia, um, excluding China and Japan? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, so I think uh, Katrina did discuss the geographic areas we look to invest. I, I guess the only comment I'd add is we, we certainly do look at all markets as potential investments. Um, we've held uh, South Korean equities in the past, uh, we've definitely looked at India as well. Now, when we look across the globe, it's always what's the best investments. Um, so, for for example, in India, there was some very high valuations getting around on admittedly good companies, but we're very happy not to be invested somewhere if we don't think it's the best investment. So, it's it, we won't ever force allocations to a given country. Um, we'll continue to look on a bottoms-up basis across the world. Fantastic. Thanks, Nick. And we'll stay with you. This is a question from Peter. He said, you mentioned that two-thirds of WAM Global's holdings are small to mid-caps. However, 15% of the top 20 holdings have a market cap of above $100 billion um, USD. Can you clarify what you mean by two-thirds of WAM Global's holdings are in small to mid-cap companies? Yes, definitely, Peter. Um, so the way we approach this is... Uh, we use the MSCI, uh, the Morgan Stanley Capital Indices, as a kind of way to think about how to differentiate between large, mid and small. We certainly don't want to be going around deciding that this is a small company or that's a small company. Um, so our benchmark is Misty World. They have Misty World small, mid and large. The cutoffs globally are much larger than we're used to as Australian companies. Uh, per Misty definition, small is up to $15 billion and mid is up to 40. However, when thinking about on an apples to apples comparison basis, there just are extremely big companies out there in the world. Um, so that is kind of an accurate representation of what, what is a small company, what is a mid-sized company globally. And with regards to the stats around two thirds are being smaller mid, that, that's absolutely correct on, on those kind of calculations. Thanks, Nick. And passing to you, Will, um, this next question is from Steph. She says, what's your view on global technology stocks? Um, thanks, Steph, for the question. So global technology, um, it's hard to look at with a single one lens. So we disaggregate it into sort of firstly um, high-quality, well-run, profitable companies with sustainable earnings growth, and then the other bucket would be non-profitable um, 
poorly run, plenty of adjustments to their accounting statements. And that's probably a section of the market that we wouldn't touch. So if you look at our top 20 holdings and what we've spoken about today, um, some examples of our tech holdings are Intuit, which does um, software mission critical to its customers, SAP, which again, um, mission critical to its customers. These are extremely well run, extremely mission critical, have a demonstrable track record of delivering sustained earnings growth, and they're trading at attractive valuations with positive catalysts on the horizon. Thanks, Will. And I think this is the last question we have time for. Um, this next one's for Katrina, and it's from Ellen. She says, how long do you hold your companies and why would you sell? Yes, yeah, so in terms of the holding period for stocks, it does vary um, widely, and it really depends on the stock on on that stock each individual stock continuing to fit our investment process so i mean there can be a number of reasons why we would sell um you know like it, and if we and if you think about our process you know it's industry position management earnings growth potential of the business valuation and then being able to identify a catalyst that we think will drive the share price and and reasons for selling might be thesis drift you know, we had a theory around what the earnings would do. The company doesn't deliver on, on that thesis, on what we thought. Um, the, otherwise, there might be other reasons why, like, the, there's a, you know, the valuation gets to such a level that, that we sell. BME was an example that Nick talked about earlier on, on that, in that case. Uh, and so there can be various reasons why we do sell. If we continue to see a stock meeting our investment process though, and ongoing catalysts to drive the share price, then we are very happy to hold a stock for the long term. Um, and, and, and that is a perfect setup because we know the business, we know the management team, um, have demonstrable record, record of delivering on what they say. And look, an example of that would be Thermo Fisher Scientific, which we've owned since the start of the fund. Um, we think the management team's extremely high quality. Mark Casper, the CEO, is, is an A-grade CEO. Um, they're the, you know, dominant in their industry. They've consistently beaten earnings over time. Um, and so it, the, the, in terms of the holding period, it, yeah, it does vary. Um, but we love those situations where there's a company that does consistently meet ex beat expectations um, and where we do continue to see those those catalysts. Um, but, you know, as always, we are grounded in our investment process and stocks continuing to, to fit that. Thanks, Katrina. And I think that's all we have time for. Um, so I'll pass back to you for any closing remarks. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Bridget, for facilitating the, the Q&A um, and to Nick and Will for joining me today. Um, a big thank you to everyone for dialing in and for your questions. Um, as, I, as we've talked about today, we're very excited about the portfolio of companies that we own and their prospective uh, returns. And we look forward to updating you again soon. Thanks, Trine. And a recording of the call will be available on our website shortly. As always, please get in touch with us via phone or email with any questions or feedback that you have. Thank you.